Hello and welcome to another episode of Biology Bobbles. Today I'm being worn, joined by the lovely Fiona Mulrooney. Yeah, Say you hi. forgot impeccable and wonderful, but <laughs> it's fine. I mean, I'm trying to go for a 40-minute episode this time. Maybe, maybe 20. That doesn't even fit all my epithets, but we'll just keep it rolling. Would you like to throw in a couple just for the <laughs> audience? Oh, well, there's the absolute legend, of course, but then there's the queen absolute of legend. all bees okay. is my queen personal bees. favorite. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know you had a relationship. <laughs> Interesting. So uh, you are an English major. Indeed. Okay. That's good because um, we're going to have a little bit of a, I think a, I tried to throw a little bit of philosophical spin on most of my episodes. Uh, and this one is particularly fitting because we are talking about breath and what happens if you don't do it. And so we're going to start by reading some Milton. Yeah. I love that guy. Yeah, he was a he was a cool dude. Um ahead of his time and behind of ours, but fun to think about nonetheless. Uh we're now going to read from Paradise Lost book 7. Mm-hmm. This is a this is God speaking supposedly. Let us make now man in our image, man in our similitude, and let them rule over fish and fowl and sea and air beast of the field over and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. This said he formed thee, Adam, thee, O man, dust of the ground, and in thy nostrils breathed the breath of life. In his own image he created thee, in the image of God express, and thou becamest a living soul. Milton was the original punk rocker. <laughs> he was talking about God blowing up your nostrils. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, that's, um... That, that, that's countercurrent. Yeah, so um, humans, as Milton and every other semi-sentient human has noticed, mm-hmm. need air to breathe. <laughs> the average person can hold their breath for about two minutes, but the world record is about 24 minutes by freediver Alex Segura Vendrell of Barcelona. And this is largely due to two biochemical systems in our bodies. We're going to start with the first one, which is the oxygen transport and storage system. Fun. Doesn't that just sound, doesn't that keep you on the edge of your seats? It's like oxygen the truckers, transport. but in your body. Yeah, actually, that's an analogy I'm going to I'm gonna keep keep okay. going throughout. The, we're we're going to make people hate all truckers as soon as they see them <laughs> leaving this episode. They're going to be driving past. truckers. Not with the amount of times we're going to refer to them as hemoglobin and myoglobin. Oh, they're not going to like us. It's nothing against truckers. We're just uh-huh. going to talk about them so much in such a vaguely appropriate analogy that you're just going to be surrounded with them and you're going to have too much. It's going to mm-hmm. you're going to overload your senses in truckers. So, proteins responsible for maintaining blood oxygen levels in humans are not constant across the whole human race. Uh, the levels fluctuate by demand and are largely controlled by epigenetic factors, which mm-hmm. means not genetically determined, at least the levels of them in your blood. Uh, meaning Alix Seguera Vendrell, who makes a living off of breathing very little, will have blood that can accommodate muscles needing oxygen for a long time, but the types of hemoglobin and myoglobin can vary. Example being, uh, humans who live in high altitudes, such as the Tibetans, their hemoglobin actually has higher oxygen binding affinity than everyone else, meaning that when a lowlander comes to Tibet, Mm-hmm. Um, initially, they're going to likely get sick with hyperbaric hypoxia because they're getting less oxygen per breath with their blood than the Tibetans are. And so they're going to have to make end up making more of those proteins that eventually acclimate that way. But the Tibetans, because they've evolved to, to have that differently. The Tibetans have everything on us. Yeah. 
The monks? The monks. Well, I mean, Canada isn't, like, being suppressed horribly by China. So that's one thing that their, their fancy breathing powers couldn't stop, if that's uh, not too soon to say. Whoops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Tibet. These strategies are epitomized in species like the Coiver's Beaked Whale, which is the world's deepest diving marine mammal, uh, with incredibly specialized myoglobin and hemoglobin that allows it to hold its breath for up to 140 minutes. Uh, the runners-up are elephant seals with 190 minutes, and sperm whales, who I think everyone thought was the one, uh, with 90 minutes. And a lot of this is to do with their special proteins, but a lot is also to do with energy expenditure. Uh, whales and seals' metabolic rates plummet during their deep-sea dives okay. in order to conserve oxygen. But what happens when you run out of oxygen? Bum, bum, bum. Thus leading us to the second biochemical process. Uh, and in order for us to understand and appreciate this, I'm going to have to introduce you to ATP. I, I learned about ATP in 11th grade. Yes. And God, Mrs. Mankowski, if you're listening to this, <laughs> I do remember what it is. It's energy points. Yes. Right? Yeah, the more ATP you have, the more energy you have. That's that's just, that's mm -hmm. bio 101. Everyone knows that. Normally, your body digests glucose. And for every molecule of glucose you get, uh, you get 38 ATP, Efficient. provided you have oxygen. But when you don't have oxygen, every molecule of glucose gives you two, which is why we need oxygen. Yep. Yep. And while the normal results of breaking down the glucose go on to make the ATP and water, these bits build up if you don't have oxygen and are converted to lactate. Now, do you remember in gym class or maybe that magic school bus episode, it's depending when you on... stitch. A stitch? Isn't that when you stitch up? Yes. <laughs> kind <laughs> do of. Do you not know? Yeah. No, I, I, I know that. Okay. I, I'm less familiar with that so much as just in general when you're like on a run mm -hmm. or on the pump and your muscles start to feel like they're burning. Mm -hmm. oh. Yeah. Um, everyone says that that's lactic acid, but more importantly than lactic acid is lactate, which our body intentionally makes to uh, allow that really inefficient um, breakdown of glucose called glycolysis uh, to continue happening as our primary source of ATP and energy. So lactic acid is like lactase's evil twin. Yes, okay. that's a great way of putting it. <laughs> you know, I, I'm kind of disappointed at myself for not using the trucker analogy as much. So maybe if we can shoehorn that in okay, here. Okay, understood. Lactic acid uh -huh. is lactate's evil trucker twin. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, okay. okay, great. Moving on. Yeah, um, so lactic acid, it doesn't naturally occur at healthy levels. But mm -hmm. if you have too much lactate, then you get lactic acid. You don't go straight to lactic acid okay. or your muscles would like melt every time and that would not be comfy. One of the things going against us as humans and whales and seals is that we are endothermic. Do you know that? You know that uh, word. It's like heat on the inside? Yes. I don't... <laughs> yeah, basically. We, we, we get our heat from the inside. Okay. Yeah, so we are constantly burning through this energy to make sure that we stay nice and comfy and cozy in our ivory towers of ATP. But a lot of life, such as like 90% of everything, mm -hmm. is actually uh, ectothermic, which means that they get to chill. <laughs> if, they, if, they, if they cool down, then they, everything slows down, okay. including their metabolic rates and their oxygen needs. In particular, turtles. Yes. I love turtles. You're going to love them a lot more than you're going to love truckers. <laughs> <laughs> I think that went without saying. Yeah, of course. So turtles can survive 
extreme anoxia, which is a fancy biological term for basically no oxygen, mm -hmm. for months on end. How? And turtles have a couple of different, different tricks up their sleeves. On land, turtles breathe through their mouth, into their lungs. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you on a little bit of a philosophical journey for this one. What is the opposite of air? Um... In a, a vacuum? In a, in a biological sense. Oh. Dense. Like mud. Mud? Sure. Yeah, yeah let's go with that. Opposite of air is mud. It's mud. So what is the opposite of the mouth? Uh, my guess is your butt. Your butt. Yeah. That's correct. Ding, ding, ding. <gasps> uh, meaning, when turtles uh, go underwater, on land they breathe through their lungs, but underwater they breathe through their butts. But you said through their lungs, so like the butt air goes to the lungs, right? No. Uh, the way it works oh. is um, that turtle butts are highly vascularized. So they have lots of blood vessels running along the inside of their butts. Meaning that underwater, uh, the water can enter their butts and like their, the mud or whatever can go into their butts. Uh, and then their butts, blood can suck the oxygen out of the water. Yeah. Do we have that? <laughs> I'm going to say yes at, like, a very minute level, but because, like, we have relatively thick skin, like, this is, like, the, the blood veins are, like, right next mm -hmm. to the... It's it's highly specialized. We kind of do it, but we have, like, oil and skin, and it, it it's, it's much more complicated for us. So, yes, we breathe through our skins, but much less than turtles breathe through their butts. Okay. Yeah, and it's the same kind of thing with frogs, how they breathe through their skins, like, 70% of the time. That's called cloacal respiration. Is the One more time. Cloacal respiration. I, I, I can actually spell it better than I can pronounce That's it. That's for you sure. kids in the back. Cloacal respiration, breathing through your butts. Opposite of farting, basically. <laughs> but, of course... <laughs> but <laughs> not all oxygen has not all water has oxygen and so lactic acid buildup is kind of inevitable for turtles that go down to the bottom of a pond and decide to doze through the winter so how do they survive that if they're going to build up lactic acid how can they counteract that mm -hmm. this is this is the fun fact i told you earlier in passing and probably one of the most badass things that i did not think turtles would be up to they use their shells as a buffer to prevent oh. the lactic acid from building up. So they are effectively at the bottom of the lake when they have no oxygen. Mm. They are dissolving themselves from the inside out just to maintain a perfect internal pH. Yeah, I didn't really understand that fact when you told it to me the first time, but in context, it makes sense. Okay. Well, I'm glad to know that now Now you're someone who would just smile and nod through my biology bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That was me. One one more fun thing about turtles that uh, has less to do with them breathing easy so much as us loving turtles is that they have something that has been called in the biology community as negligible senescence, which means that turtles essentially don't age in the senses that we consider aging. Examples being uh, survival rates as well as fertility and telomere lengths do not change between embryonic turtles and adults. So do you know what a telomere is? A telomere? <laughs> a telomere. <laughs> Basically, uh, there's, there's a lot of science about how telomeres are the cause of aging. Basically, chromosomes. If you imagine them kind of like a, like a fry. Or, or okay. Like, a, like a, a fry that a trucker might eat. 
that a trucker might, might eat. Yeah, a fry like a, that, that a trucker might eat. Uh, over time, the ends of the fry kind of get broken down and degraded, right? Mm-hmm. So the body does everything it, it can do to regrow those ends of the fry to protect the inside of the fry from getting eaten by the trucker. This is a horrible analogy. <laughs> and so those ends are called telomeres. And the longer your telomeres are, supposedly the younger you are and the healthier you are because mm. the telomeres don't have any important genetic information. But the more whittled down they get, the more damage the inside of the the chromosome gets and they, the older you become. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so the, the less important genes, such as um, like not having a wrinkly, saggy face, um, are on the ends of the chromosomes. So they're the they're the genes that degrade first. But turtles don't they don't their telomeres don't really degrade. You can take a telomere length from like a turtle at conception and then compare it to a turtle that's like 150 years old and it's going to be maybe minutely different. And they think scientists hypothesize that this is because turtles have so many adaptations to make sure that they never get stressed, mm-hmm. that they never age. So because turtle, you can't, like, it's almost impossible to stress out a turtle. Example being here, you can stick a turtle at the bottom of a frozen lake for five months, and it says, okay, I'll just breathe through my butt. Worst case scenario, I'll start <laughs> dissolving myself. I don't I don't care. <laughs> I'm fine. Like, check back again in eight months. What would make a turtle panic? What do I'm you not sure. Do? You know, and I don't think, I don't think that's a, a question that humanity deserves to know the answer to. You know? Agreed. Okay. Like worst case scenario, tigers after you. Oh, guess what? I have a I have a shell. Yeah, trying to eat this bitch. <laughs> yeah. So turtles, kind of, kind of, kind of awesome. But why would you dissolve yourself when you can be the life of the party? And this is segueing into goldfish. Okay. Yeah. So one thing about turtles, obviously, is that when they go when they, when they freeze and mm-hmm. go into this uh, anaerobic state. They, or anoxic state, I should say, they basically go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And that's because you can't, like, being awake and, and moving around obviously ha- takes so much energy that you wouldn't be able to survive oh, those eight months if you, in, like, <laughs> if, you <laughs> if you weren't in a coma, basically. Um, but goldfish have a special adaptation that let them continue to move around and not really care a whole lot about not having oxygen <laughs> because they don't make lactate or lactic acid. Going back to the life of the party analogy, mm-hmm. they have a very special enzyme called alcohol dehydrogenase. Nice. And what do you think that does? Oh, tell me it gets them drunk. It does. <laughs> That's exactly what it does. It's the same. The alcohol dehydrogenase is the enzyme, the exact same one that yeast have. So yeast obviously being used for brewing and making beer. Goldfish have this enzyme as well so that instead of building up lactate, they take these these end products of glycolysis that would build up in the body and become toxic and instead turn them to alcohol, which can diffuse into the water around them. So instead, when they run out of oxygen, they just ferment the water around them, get everyone, <laughs> get everyone drunk, and continue to swim. So in these conditions, uh, goldfish can survive about two days with uh, zero oxygen. Um, and if they do decide to shut things down and go to sleep, then they can survive about two to three months. No, four to five months. Pardon. Step aside, sperm whale. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like the, the humble little goldfish. And part of this is because uh, they can, their body, do you know what glycogen is? Nope. Okay. Glycogen is basically like 
animal version of starch. So it's just, it's like complex sugar. I barely know what starch is, man. Yeah, okay, okay. So if glucose is one, one like little ring molecule, mm-hmm. glycogen is like a pearl necklace of, of molecules. So it just like goes on really long. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can store up sugar as glycogen or you can break it down for and then get glucose out of it. Goldfish are so prepared that they come to the pre ready for the for the party. The goldfish can be up to 15% glycogen or essentially 15% sugar uh, in preparation for anoxia. That's kind of badass. It kind of is. But while we're, we're I'm, I'm putting on a little bit of a roller coaster of thinking, okay, I, I hope this is what I'm doing at least. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, okay, that's pretty badass. How much better can it get? And then I'm, I have full intentions of topping that. There's a finale. Oh, no, this isn't even... this. Is something that deserves to be the finale, but just isn't because of how ridiculous this topic is. <laughs> Have you ever heard of a tardigrade? The TARDIS? It definitely looks like a Doctor Who uh, monster. Okay. But what it is, is a microscopic, eight-legged water bear. It's called. It's been called uh, a water bear and a moss piglet. I'm sure you've heard of them because they are impossible to kill. It's... Well, the- they're they're microscopic. Yeah, they can. I mean, they can be up to one millimeter long, but for the most part, Disgusting. microscopic. But they are basically they are basically indestructible. Uh, just to give you uh, a few ideas, they have survived negative two hundred degrees Celsius as well as positive one hundred and fifty degrees Celsius, pressures that are six thousand times stronger than the atmosphere of the Earth, and radiation thousands of times stronger than humans, and the vacuum of space, and they have been more or less fine. Oh, I like them. This extent, oh yeah, <laughs> tardigrades. Honestly, if you're ever having a bad study day, and you're at you're at Stauffer and you're just getting in into your head about like, oh glycolysis or Milton or you know any any of the things that you might find yourself, just look up look up tardigrades under a microscope. They're so incredibly slow moving but adorable. They just kind of like flail around until they find <laughs> some algae to munch on, and they totally live boring lives most of the time. They like like. Where you find tardigrades is like, you know, on, on like tidal pools and just like swimming around and munching on microalgae. And yet, they're ready for some serious shit. Uh, in 2015, NASA sent some tardigrades up in a satellite, uh, exposed them to the vacuum of space, mm-hmm. and then had them come back down. And then 14 out of 18 tardigrade eggs hatched and lived normal lives. What about the other four? Oh, they died. But those are the eggs. All the adults survived, too. Ah, I Isn't was, that ridiculous? I was hoping that the other four... You said they hatched and lived normal lives, and I thought they hatched and became vigilantes. And lived. <laughs> the, other, the other four were like, we will not stand for this. Just because we're tardigrades doesn't mean that you can just send us into space. Yeah. Fuck that. Come on, guys. Ridiculous. Anyway, when put in a zero-oxygen environment, mm-hmm. we talked about slowing down metabolism. Mm-hmm. Tardigrades will slow down their metabolism to one ten thousandth their original rate. They curl up into a tiny indestructible pellet coated in antifreeze and take a nap that, by all accounts, is death. They die. They I'm just really they just jealous. curl up and die. So all the times I've said that I've wanted to die, but really I just mean I'm really tired, tardigrades uh-huh. just get to carry that out. They get to do that on a regular <laughs> basis. They can do that. Um, the oldest example I've seen of tardigrades being resurrected from the dead was um, eight years. 
They, they found eight-year-old tardigrades and they said, okay, what's going to happen if we give them oxygen? They gave them oxygen. Tardigrades stretched, woke up, and started eating algae again. <laughs> Isn't that adorable? Just like, another day. Like, oh my god, tardigrades. Honestly, I would, if someone came up to me wearing a tinfoil hat and shook me and said, Thor, you don't understand. The tardigrades are from outer space. They're looking to take us over. I'd be like, shit, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> like, I got to get my tardigrade gun or some, you know, like... These guys are ridiculous. I'm going to deviate us from, from mm-hmm. this slightly. Because Just like it's... a septum. Yeah. <laughs> deviate the septum, like a septum of a trucker. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Have you ever heard of the Danakil Depression? No. I, I might be pronouncing it wrong. It might be Danikil or something like that. Uh, but it is a desert in Ethiopia uh, that is also known as the Gateway to Hell. Oh, cool. I have a friend from Ethiopia. I wonder if she knows about it. Don't tell her to go here because this is, it's it's not. It, it's it's. Whew. I'm just going to tell you about it. Okay. And then you can understand why we call it the gateway to hell. And I think this is appropriate given that we started with uh, Milton's take on, on mm-hmm. creation. So the Danikil or Danakil or whatever depression <laughs> is arguably the hottest place on earth and one of the driest. It is covered in acid pools created by something called polyextremophiles, which are tiny microbes that are kind of like the kind of like the the Red Bull stunt people, uh-huh. except that instead of jumping off of large ramps or going flying through mountains, mm-hmm. they live in pH of like zero environments at boiling temperatures with no oxygen. Your average Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah, so these acid pools uh, created by these polyextremophiles, um, the the biggest one being called Gate Ale uh, or Arath, is an oily yellow lake. Um, and I'm going to quote from a scientist from the University of Bologna, which is more legitimate than it sounds, named Cavalazzi. Other people have named it Killer Lake because when you work around it and look around, you see a lot of small insects and birds lying dying nearby. They probably arrived there to drink some water, but what actually killed them was the strong emissions of carbon dioxide. Now, because carbon dioxide is heavier than air, it sinks to the ground, Mm -hmm. where small creatures like birds breathe, and if they breathe the area just above the lake, such as when they're about to go for a drink, they suffocate. It's safe for humans because we can walk above it, but this gateway to hell is going to be covered in acid puddles, which will like melt just about anything surrounded in dying insects and birds because we choke on the air. So these organisms, um, they, they, don't, they don't just have to be polyextremophiles that, that don't breathe oxygen. There's a whole category of them called anaerobes. Um, and some of them uh, actually die when they're exposed to oxygen. Wacky. Yeah. yeah. I thought... I just remember learning at some point that, like, mm-hmm. all living creatures need, like, oxygen and water yeah. to live. You know, I, I was I was tempted to throw that in there because that, that brings into the whole question, oh, well, fire moves and it consumes oxygen and fuel. Is fire living? I don't know. Yeah, right? Right? Yeah. Um, so I would say no. But then also these guys don't need oxygen and they're definitely living. So, yeah, I'm going to quote from among my favorite scientists from the 1600s named Van Leeuwenhoek. 
Okay. He's a Dutch guy who invented the first microscope and didn't let anyone else copy him. Uh, and he was the only person <laughs> who observed um, what he called animalcules. I'm just happy that there are so many scientists and they're so excited to share their creations mm -hmm. with the world and they want a better humanity. He just went, no, fuck you. No, Van Leeuwenhoek, you come up to try to touch his microscope. He's like, no, my microscope. This is, I only get to use this. Yeah, so he was a really big scientist because he would look at tiny organisms. Okay. And he was actually the first one to observe and describe anaerobes. So what he did was he had an experiment where he took some rainwater uh, and put it in a test tube uh, and then took another test tube, filled it with rainwater, and then sealed it, lit a match on the inside and sealed it so that it had no oxygen left because the maybe living fire uh, mm -hmm. consumed all the oxygen. He described uh, in the open glass tube after a few days, a great many very little animalcules of diverse sort having its own particular motion. And the closed one, he saw a kind of living animalcules that were round and bigger than the biggest sort that I have said were in other water. Which, don't you just feel his e eccentricity just conveying <laughs> through the, the thousands of years? Yeah, he has like the tussled mad scientist hair. Yeah. He probably has shaky hands. <laughs> and he's just peering into... Another great thing about the Van Leeuwenhoek microscope, you recreated it today, uh -huh. but it's so small and so impossible to use that it's like most people, the, their eyes just end up hurting and they can't see anything. So it was just this one crazy little genius Dutch guy talking about his animalcules swimming around in water. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So these are actually fairly common. They don't just exist in boiling acid puddles from hell. Um, they're often found in the guts of animals that help them break down grass. And one of the stinkiest forms of these are called methanogens, uh, which are types of bacteria that, in absence of oxygen, form meth. And amphetamines? No, no. Okay. I, 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 yeah, yeah, methane. <laughs> okay. Um, this, too, occurs in cows such that the average cow, it, it occurs in cows to the, the degree, like these guys do so much in cows, that the average cows emit about 250 liters of methane a day. Ah, don't you want a burger right now? No. <laughs> and it's, it's I'm going to make burgers a little bit more bitter to the taste mm -hmm. uh, by pointing out that methane is actually 25 times worse than CO2 per molecule for greenhouse emissions. Yeah. So are you ready to... Uh, to get to the part of the podcast where I talk about the uh, imminent collapse of the human race and Earth. Oh, okay, yeah. Hold on. Okay, good. I need to put my depression shoes on. And they're on. Do you have your laces? My laces? I guess it doesn't matter if you trip it for yourself. They're Velcro. Okay, great. Um, have you ever heard of a thermocarst lake? No. Okay. I hadn't either until <laughs> I started Googling what a thermocarst lake was. Lots of methanogens and other anaerobes live underneath the permafrost in the Arctics, and they've just kind of been doing their own thing there, building up tons and tons of natural gas. That permafrost, of course, is melting because we've been pumping the air full of methane and carbon dioxide right, right. and all that stuff. And thermocarst lakes are when permafrost melts, uh, it puddles to form a lake. And because the lake transmits heat better than the, the permafrost did, the thermocarst lake melts more of the permafrost. Makes sense. Which exposes more of the methanogens and the methane that they've been <laughs> making to the, to the atmosphere. So is, are all the poles going to be stinky? Basically, yeah. Okay. Yeah, there has been the world's greatest fart brewing underneath <laughs> the ice ice caps for thousands of years. If, if, if the methanogens in one cow makes 250 liters of fart per day... Can you imagine what they've been doing 
underneath the Arctic for thousands of years. It's like the most epic middle school prank ever. <laughs> hey, I'm gonna go melt the Arctic. And you can, I'm gonna fart on everybody. <laughs> yeah. Oof. Oh, but it's an actual problem. We'll stop laughing now. Yeah, it's it's not good because um, in the in the same uh, 2015 NASA thing that I was quoting before, they anticipate that right now our models of climate change aren't great. But most of them don't take into the account that we're going to have a world-ending fart coming in about 20 <laughs> to 30 years. Which effective- I'm so happy to live through that. Yeah. Assuming something terrible doesn't happen. I think if there's one reason to leave Canada in the next 20 years, that would be it. Oh, just head for the equator. Yeah. Maybe it won't reach us. Maybe. That or it won't reach us in the sense that it'll just burn the entire world and being at the equator will kill us. Oh. Yeah, so we're going to be stuck between a huge fart and, like, laser quality radiation burning us. Wait, what? Where did the radiation come from? Oh, because greenhouse gases and destroying the atmosphere. Oh, no. Yeah. Isn't that great? Isn't that... You know what? I'm actually going to end it on a slightly higher note. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. So polyextremophiles. Right. Um, Sounds like some weird deviation from sexuality, from normative sexuality. Extremophiles, like like that's like people who are really turned on by parkour. It's like (laughs) you know those you know those squirrel suit Red Bull guys as they're like flying around. How awkward it be if they they like do a flip or something and you just get a a clean shot of a boner (laughs) (laughs) flying around. They've got like a dorsal fin. Okay, um, enough on enough on boners. Extraterrestrial life. I, I, I think it exists. What do you think? I think, it's I out think there. I'm gonna leave it to the audience by me presenting the facts. Okay, so they NASA kind of leads us on a little mm-hmm. a little roller coaster here in and of itself. So the presence of atmospheric methane has a role in searching for extraterrestrial life. Because in theory, methane in the atmosphere eventually dissipates and settles. Mm-hmm. Right? Just like carbon dioxide. Sure, sure, sure. It's heavier. Um, everything eventually dissipates unless something is replenishing it. So finding methane on the surface of Mars, which we have done, might possibly uh, signify that there are methanogens farting up Mars. Right? That's cool. Right. Uh, and then everyone... As soon as, as soon as we saw methane on Mars, everyone was like, actually, no, it's probably coming from a volcano or something. Mm. Um, it's it's probably coming from the fissures in the Earth's crust, whatever, or plant Mars' crust. Um, but then in 2015, NASA discovered what was called the Enceladus, or Enceladus, en- Enceladus pl- plume. Enceladus. E-N-C- enceladus plume. <laughs> oh, my God. The Enceladus plume is the fart cloud. NASA, you dirty bastards. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I deciphered it. NASA's going to call me in. <laughs> Hi. Yeah. Are we talking to Fiona Mulrooney? Yeah. Come join NASA. We need, we need you to make puns about, about Mars farts. Yeah. In 2015, NASA discovered uh, the E N C E L A D U S plume, which has perfect conditions for methanogenesis based life forms. So they think if there's going to be extraterrestrial life, it's probably going to be in the Enceladus. Enceladus. So it's the next rover heading up. 
Not sure. Hmm. And I think the the deal with the Enceladus plume is it's like a storm, like Martian level storm. So like you might have a hard time sending a rover in and getting data back. We're gonna have to send people. <laughs> Once more onto the Matt farm. Damon, you're on. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So that's that's how to survive without oxygen. Uh, how do you feel? Good. I feel like I have to kidnap some of those bear guys. Tardigrades. No, I don't re- tardigrades. Honestly, if I could like have a little water tank uh-huh. and just feed tardigrades, they would be the best pet. Because part of the reason why goldfish are kept as a pet is because they can do that thing where they turn the water around them into alcohol and they can just survive forever while the five-year-old that owns them runs around and forgets about them for a week. Um, which is sad, but it's fine. It's sad. Um, yeah. But tardigrades, they're cute. They eat algae, which is, like, free. Mm-hmm. They're impossible to kill. You know what? While we're talking uh, about potential startup biology ventures... How hard do you think it would be? Because it turns out uh, we actually have the genes to make uh, the alcohol dehydrogenases that yeasts and um, goldfish do. It's just in our in our muscles. And it, we don't use them for some reason. So do you think that there would be some way of taking a pill that activates that mm-hmm. so that every time you go on a run for like two or three days, you get wasted? Well, that's not what I was thinking. I wasn't... Nope. So the thing, what what happens is you make the water around you alcoholic. Yes. I just imagine all the, like the public bathhouses in Rome, like that's how they really got down and funky. <laughs> they put goldfishes in the bath. No, I think I think once upon a time uh-huh. we used to be able to make the oh! water around us into alcohol, and we've since Ugh. lost it. Then you have to drink bath water. I think Do you I drink don't... bath water, Fiona? I think Are the... you admitting to the world on my podcast that you drink bath water? Well, I'm glad you mentioned it at the end because I'm now kicking you out. I'm closing this episode. Thank you all for listening. Uh, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Hey.